Welcome back to Hurdle. Emily here. Guys, I have been on a whirlwind past few weeks. It started in London the day after my birthday where this episode was actually recorded. And since then, I've been back to New York for less than 12 hours, then to Vail for the GoPro Mountain Games, and then to Los Angeles for a week. Lessons learned. Let's see here. I actually really, really loved London. Uh, I need to get back there ASAP. Uh, there's such a thing as freestyle kayaking, which is absolutely unreal to see in person. And what else? Um, sunburns are the worst. Anyway, this episode, Dina Castor. She's a household name in the world of running, a champion marathoner, and New York Times best-selling author of her newer book, Let Your Mind Run. When she arrived in China for the Beijing Olympics in 2008, she was so, so ready to crush the competition. But three miles into her race, the ASICS-backed pro felt something snap in her right foot, which caused her to fall to the ground and drop out of the race. Ouch. In today's episode, she tells me why she's so thankful for that devastating injury, and then she shares a lot of super interesting insight into the mental tricks and mantras that contribute to, wait for it, her outstanding 520-mile marathon pace. I, I said to her in the episode, I can barely walk from my bed to the bathroom in five minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> she also shares essential advice for beginner runners definitely some stuff I wish I knew when I was getting into the sport. Also, I feel like it's super important just to chat a little bit more about what I do when I'm not over here on the pod. I've told you guys before, in addition to being a certified trainer and a run coach, I'm also a freelance writer and editor for a bunch of different publications, ranging from GQ and Shape to Pop Sugar, Well and Good, Self, Cosmopolitan. Kind of, if they have a wellness category, I am likely pitching them content. And so because of that, I have really excellent relationships with a lot of different brands and companies. So when they launch new products or have exciting things going on, oftentimes they'll reach out to the members of the media to put together what is commonly referred to as a press trip. And that's just a fun activation uh, anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, really. Last year, I went to Hawaii and watched Iron Man in Kona. I have been to Hong Kong, Dublin, Ireland to run a marathon, Germany to check out Adidas headquarters domestically, oh goodness, everywhere, Nantucket, Deer Valley, New Mexico, Los Angeles so many times. The list feels endless, and I feel so, so blessed that this is a part of what I do. This trip to London, where I mentioned we recorded the podcast with Dina, was with ASICS. Uh, over there, they were conducting a science experiment where we tested out running in the dark versus running in the light on a track. And also, we celebrated a new iteration of their fan favorite shoe, the Gelcayano 25. So again, a huge thanks to ASICS for this opportunity. I just always want to make sure I am being transparent and upfront with all of you. I think that's it. That about sums it up. As always, don't forget to rate and review Hurdle in the iTunes store. Follow along with the pod on social media at Hurdle Podcast. And shoot me a note if you ever have any questions or just want to say hi. Emily at hurdle.us. And with that, let's get to hurdling.
I'm sitting here today with Dina Castor. She is an Olympic medalist, American record holder for the marathon. I'm like totally fangirling over this. And also a New York Times best-selling author of her new book, Let Your Mind Run, which just came out in April. That's outstanding. It really is. And the New York Times giving giving really all authors that podium, like every athlete strives to be on the podium of the Olympic Games. And this is really the Olympics of writing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the adult, the Olympics of adulting. Yes, yes. (laughs) The last time I saw you was for your book launch in New York City. I am a little geeking out over the fact that we're sitting in London right now. Yep, we are across the pond, as they say, and um, just amazing here that ASICS brought us to such an amazing event, a challenge. Um, they're calling it the the ASICS Blackout, which is, in essence, taking over a warehouse and making a makeshift track there with no light, no sound. You're basically just getting on the track to run a 10K with no outside influences. I even got um, wanded to make sure that I, that I wasn't wearing a watch or any type of implement that could give me any information out there. So it was really an amazing experience to to run with the freedom of not having any sense of of pace or time or distance and even even so much that you couldn't see scenery passing you by so you couldn't have a perception of of pace or distance or time it just felt like i was running in this in this circle and it felt <laughs> neither fast nor slow it didn't go by quickly nor slowly it just felt like this lovely meditation which i think comes back to the to the grounding that running can give us and asics is an acronym for anamasana incorporate sana which is a sound mind and a sound body so they're just staying true to that to that foundation you say that acronym better than anyone I've ever heard that <laughs> acronym before. Adina is also an ASIC-sponsored athlete. I feel record. very privileged to have been with this company for 18 years, so I, I feel like they're family to me by now. Uh, two things. First of all, did you know that they refer to running without a sport watch or any technology as naked? I just used air quotes for those listening at home. Oh, running naked. naked. Okay. And I had worked with an editor at Women's Health, and she asked me if I wanted to write a story about running naked. And I was like, I don't know if I should do that. Where do, do I that. go for that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I should do that, but it just means sans technology. Yeah. And I would I, say I could do that piece, but I'm not taking part in it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, um, I tried it. And I actually, for someone, I feel like we are so connected in our everyday. It was really calming. Yes. Um, Especially, I mean, I wear the Apple watch all of the time and to run without the watch, not just to not be so constantly checking my pace and my statistics, but also to be so out of the loop with anyone who's trying to reach me was so enjoyable. (laughs) Absolutely. And you even think like right before I even stepped on the track, I was immediately, I was on my phone saying, I've accepted the challenge. Like, you know, getting on social media, like we are bombarded with so much information in the day that to be on that track for the 34 minutes that I, that I was on it, it just felt so calming and so free and, and, and much like a meditation. Speaking of meditation, do you meditate? Um, I, I would hesitate in calling my, 
like saying that I meditate, but I do use the Headspace app with my daughter every day after school. We sit in the parking lot and just kind of reset um, for three minutes or five minutes. I don't know what kind of day she's having, so I just want to use it as an opportunity to reset and then we can open up and talk about it or or go on to our next activity, which is usually a craft or going to the park, riding her bike, something, something really, really fun and adventurous. But I also want to make sure that she is learning the tools to be able to reset herself. How was that the first time you guys did that together? Was she open to it? She was. Um, I think it was I think it was exciting for her to try something new. I think seven year olds are excited to try anything and then they'll judge after that whether they'll <laughs> ever do it again. But we do have a rule in our house that started at the dinner table that you can only have an opinion about something after you try it. So um, so she had to try the, the meditation app before she could form her opinion on it. And where's home? Home is in Mammoth Lakes, California. It's a ski resort in Central California. So we live a pretty active life up there and um, and have uh, open nature and trails all around us. And you live there with your husband, Andrew, obviously. Yep. yep. We're going on 15 years of, of marriage and have a seven-year-old, so life's adventurous. <laughs> and Andrew's a coach as well. He is. He's the coach of the Mammoth Track Club, and um, and he has general membership, professional runners, and also now a youth program that's starting this summer. And you met running. We did through a mutual runner friend. Um, we met that way. He was finishing up um, school at Adams State University in Alamosa, Colorado, and I was training there professionally. And we met and pretty much have spent 24-7 together since then. How is that uh, having, I mean, you don't necessarily work together, but you do I'm, yeah, we're <laughs> you, together. You work together a yeah, lot. So. We're together a lot of our day, and I think it's great that we're mutually supportive. We have different ideas on how to get things done, so I think that's also healthy. Knowing each other's strengths and and being able to rely on the other to to carry through with with an obligation or an idea, and so I feel very very fortunate that we get to work together. It's not like we rush home for dinner and have to catch up on what our day was like. We share our day, which I feel very privileged to do with the man that I love. That's awesome. Goals. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also sitting here thinking a little bit more about this mindful running phenomenon. I feel like it's everywhere right now. Like every big company is talking about running mindfully. So I'm wondering if in your practice of running, do you not, besides this time that you spend with your daughter, do you feel like your run really is that same type of meditation time? I feel like I've made a practice out of being mindful, but I also have seen two sides of the coin with mindfulness. People that roll their eyes because it seems cliche because it's been around for a while. You see people that are intimidated by mindfulness because they don't have the time for it or or they don't understand it in a way. It's in its simplest form, just the art of paying attention. Like just pay attention. What what thoughts are you serving you better? What how does this how does this idea make you feel or how does this moment make you feel and and take a deep breath and understand it in a way that's going to benefit you more. I feel like sometimes we can um we can uh I think over complicate ideas that can be really simple to um, to pursue and digest. So you've been running for 34 years, and as someone who likes running myself, I uh, I guess my first instinct to ask you is not just how you got started running, but when was the point that you realized that you were really really good at it? 
Yeah, I think um, I was good from the beginning, but it's because I enjoyed it from the beginning. So I don't know if I was good because I enjoyed it or I enjoyed it because I was good, but it was <laughs> it was mutual. So I guess that's the that's the the beauty of it is that I um, that I had some talent and something that I that I enjoyed deeply at the, at its core. I wasn't engaged in any other sports and and um, and because of that failed miserably in them. So to to be able to find a sport that I love, I think, is why um, why I was able to find a talent there what uh what sports did you fail miserably at um all of them (laughs) anything that involved coordination or equipment I um I was um, on the soccer team and scored a goal for the other team because I didn't realize we changed ways changed directions during halftime so that was a little embarrassing I was on my dad's softball team talk about a committed father he's like I'll sign up to be coach I'll sign up to be coach and he spent the whole time shaking his head um but he was the coach of my softball team and I would much rather make uh, dandelion necklaces in the outfield than then catch or throw or bat and then I tried ice skating which I loved so much my mom even hired someone to make me like the frilly outfits with oh. matching boot covers but my instructor quit on me because um, because I was scared to jump up in the air to try an axle and she quit and as she walked by my mom she said she's too skinny to be graceful anyway which my mom thought oh no her self-esteem we have to get her into something and so track was the answer because you don't have to try out everybody gets a medal or a ribbon at the end and um, so it's always a happy story and that first day um, right before the right before our first competition when my dad came Came home and said that they wanted me to perform on the varsity varsity squad. My mom thought again, oh no, that's going to ruin her self-esteem. And my dad said, well, I, they say she has potential. And I thought, me? Potential? And, um, and I was second in my first race and then ended up undefeated from there for the next few years. And did you go to, did you run in college? I did. I went to the University of Arkansas and that's when I started to struggle a little bit because I thought my talent had run out. I didn't realize I had any control over it. I thought it was a fixed trait and the person with the most talent won. So for someone with a lot of talent in the sport, I sure didn't know a lot. And it wasn't until I had that um, a couple of coaches really spark my curiosity and make me understand how much I didn't know that got me excited to pursue this sport in a bigger way. Interesting. So when you were in college, what distances were you running? I was running the 5,000 and the 10,000 meters on the track. Okay. And also cross country. Okay. Yeah. So when does the 5,000 and 10,000 meters turn into the marathon? Yeah. I thought for (laughs) years, um, I turned professional in 1996 and I for years thought Anything that takes a month to recover from or has you hobbling the next day just can't be good for you. So I always resisted um, resisted the, um, the move up to the marathon. And it wasn't until doing this beautiful run through a canyon while visiting my parents um, back in California when I was living in Colorado that it was 18 miles and it was longer than I'd ever run. And it was through this canyon to the beach and back. And I was so intimidated by this distance and by the slow, gradual climb back to my car that I went nice and slowly. I touched the sand. I looked back at the mountains and thought, should I call my dad to pick me up? But decided to do it anyway. And I was so supercharged going back up those hills, felt so energized and so capable that I called my coach and I said, I'd like to run a marathon someday. And he said, I've been waiting to hear those words out of your mouth for a long time. So it was 2001 that, um, that I, my first marathon was the New York City Marathon. 
It's a good marathon. Unbelievable. I went big. <laughs> the first marathon, I sure went big. I, I love that race. I, I affectionately refer to my first New York City marathon as the best day of my life. Oh, I just so wonderful. I look back on that experience and everyone's out there. And, and, and if you're wearing your name on your shirt, everyone's cheering your name. And it's just, there's nothing better. Like yeah. when do, you know... Hundreds of thousands of people show up to cheer for you. 1.5 million people along the course. That is insane <laughs> fans. Like, it is really, really amazing. What would we do without them? Like, I always think if the course was empty, if nobody was standing at the finish line and there was no tape to break and the fanfare to celebrate, it wouldn't feel that amazing. It really does depend on the volunteers and the and the screaming um eager uh, spectators that are on the sidelines. They're just insane and wonderful at the same time. I mean, we can take a moment and pause for Boston this year. Exact opposite of New York. I know your experience with Boston this year, Dina got hypothermia running. Which has never happened to me. I live in a ski resort where I have sometimes run in single digit temperatures and in snowstorms. Um, not all the time, but a ski resort town. And as soon as I heard the weather report, I thought, cool, I have an edge over everyone because I'm tough. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. And I don't remember what it was or who or how I ended up in the medical tent, but it was a blackout experience. I was, I remember in my final my final couple miles, I only made it to 14. That's where the medical tent was that I was, but I don't remember those miles. I just remember shaking uncontrollably (sighs) while I was running and feeling like, um, my solid legs, like my legs were frozen themselves, just pounding the pavement. I was already sore. It just Mm -hmm. felt so weird. And the next day I was more sore than any marathon I had ever run. I mean, you've run a lot more marathons than me, but I share that sentiment. (laughs) I, I was sore instantly. I've never felt like that before. Not even after a long run, just so taxed. And my body was just so angry. And again, though, just Back to this idea of the crowds being out there, everyone who did show up that had shown up before told me that this was nothing. No one was out there. When I started, I don't know about you, it was hailing. Yes. It was awful. Yeah. Awful. And, but but bless the people that were out there. Bless My them. gosh, because it was <laughs> a driving rain coming down sideways at times. An umbrella wouldn't have helped anybody. Nobody. And so it was amazing to me that there was even people out on those streets at all. Uh question I do want to ask, what happens when you go professional? Like, how does one become a professional runner? I think the um, the definition is when you can finally have a paycheck. <laughs> I think that makes you professional at something. So, um, so, but it also comes with obligations for sponsors and to meet promoters and Um, And there's a lot of people that are involved. It's not a solo mission. You're representing your your community. You're representing your sponsors. You're representing the team you run on and the coaches. And so I think the the broader your scope of team, there needs to be an extraordinary amount of trust that everybody is um, is in it for the right intentions, that everybody is competing clean. And it's a really important standard to to live up to because 
I, I think of my Mammoth Track Club and all the people that have come through the Mammoth Track Club over the years. We've produced 14, 14, 15 Olympians on our group, in our group, and it's an extraordinary feat. And to know that we've all done it clean, I think, is, um, is a testament to strong leadership with our coaches and a no-nonsense policy. There's so much pressure, I feel like, being a professional athlete. And this will kind of bring us into your hurdle moment a little bit. Uh, you ran your first marathon in New York, and then you made it to your first Olympics in 2000. Tell me before, I guess before we get into the hurdle moment, talk to me about uh, your first Olympics experience. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's like every child's dream. I, yeah. came, I became a runner the same year that Joan Benoit Samuelson won the first gold medal in the Olympic Games for, for the marathon. And it's crazy that it, it was only in 1984 that we had our first ever women's Olympic marathon. Up until then, I, I think they that the organizing committees thought women would lose their uterus if they if they ran that distance with just like, yeah, you can't help but laugh. You're like, seriously? Like, if you can keep all your parts, why can't we keep all ours? Um, but it seems extraordinary. So I, 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 I think every, every child who sees the Olympics growing up, if they get involved in sports, kind of um, has that as their ideal to be an Olympian. And so it was, it was an amazing experience to have that as one of my goals, becoming a professional to make the Olympic team, to being in a position in the year 2000 when um, the Olympics were going to be in Sydney. I thought, you know what? I'm strong enough to win these Olympic trials, not just make the team, but win the Olympic trials. And so to go in with that sort of confidence felt really felt really defining and good to me and uh, making the Olympic team. I didn't have a great Olympics, but um, but that one was about participation and it was in the 10,000 meters. And then four years later, I wanted to change that experience to being something a little more special. So that was the um, the Athens Olympics where I ended up earning a bronze medal. I like long pause because it yeah. makes me speechless just yeah. thinking about this idea of getting onto the podium at the Olympics. It was the ultimate. And, you know, as I saw Mizuki Noguchi's Japanese flag rising in the stadium next to the American flag, I was singing the American national anthem. <laughs> you can't help it. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much pride in seeing your country's flag go climb, climb the pole. So that Olympics, bronze medal. And I thought I was going to do better the next time around. So let's talk about the next time yeah. around. Uh, you're in Beijing. And how far out ahead of the race do you get on the ground in Beijing? So I got to Beijing. Um, we were actually stationed in the town of Dalian, a coastal town outside of, of Beijing as the U.S. track team. We're there for three weeks ahead of the games and then flew into Beijing just a couple days before. It's always interesting to me because they say depending, obviously, on the altitude of the destination, they give you best practice advice of when you're supposed to arrive. But I feel like, obviously, with the Olympics, there's probably a lot more things you need to be there beforehand. Yeah. You might arrive earlier for the Olympics than you would say if you were flying into a different place for just a race weekend. Right. And even for for the Sydney Olympics and the Athens Olympics, we would get there close to a month ahead of time. And it's about adaptation. And if you can, these are like the tiny tweaks that you can do to gain a slight edge and, a, and another slight edge by getting your sleep and another slight edge by hydrating. It's like all these little things that add up to, to being able to perform at your best. So getting there a few weeks ahead to adapt to the heat and humidity to um, to get on the time zone and to really get in a groove and do your um, 
you're tapering there so that you're going in confident and not sluggish. How did you feel going into the Beijing Olympics? Going into Beijing uh, 10 days out in, in the town, the coastal town of Dalian, I did an 18 mile marathon simulation run where I start off easy and get down to marathon pace. And it was the best marathon simulation run I had ever done in my career. So I felt so confident going into this race. Quick pause. What's your marathon pace? My marathon pace is is 5.20 to 5.30, depending on the course. You know, Beijing wasn't going to be a, a fast course because of the heat, then that was going to challenge us there. I, like, can't make it from my bed to, like, my bathroom sink to brush my teeth in five minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> I think my fastest mile I've ever run is, like, a 6.14, and that's a single. Ooh. Just a quick single. Yeah, but that's swift. That's, it's you know, swift. I just aspire to one day have a 5.14 marathon pace. That's outstanding. Okay, so you feel really great. Yes, and so you would have been in the lead pack for the first <laughs> few miles because we were probably going 6.30s, the okay. six, six minutes and 30 seconds mile. It was just a lot of people looking around. Nobody wanted to make a move yet. It was early, and so everybody was just kind of feeling out the the race to see who would make a move. And I remember going um, going through these gardens and feeling like a tightness on top of my foot and the very next step was was a uh, was a crack and splintering of my third metatarsal and i could hear it pop like a popsicle stick where it kind of splinters after the pop it was nauseating um to to even think about once i was on the bus like repeating that sound in my head but a, a bus had to pick me up because i couldn't put any weight on my foot and um and i made my way um to the finish line the beautiful bird's nest was not the way i had anticipated entering that stadium i read uh i read your book your new york times best-selling <laughs> book uh, let your mind run in, in the chapter about this. Uh, and you're talking about how this might have happened. Right, right. So I it took me a while to get there. But as soon as when I was on the bus and sobbing into this towel, I finally thought, you know what, I'm going to figure out how this happened. Like this doesn't just happen per chance. And I'm not about to chalk it up to to runners and athletes pushing the limits and, and breaking their bodies because I feel our bodies are very capable and very strong. So I really wanted to figure out why. And as soon as I got into that mindset of of figuring out why, I already felt empowered. I already felt like I was going to be stronger after after. So what did you start to kind of how did I guess at this point you start to kind of backtrack and like retrace your steps to figure out what may have been a trigger for this? Right. I was thinking, oh, man, what did I do? Like, what didn't I what didn't I accomplish here that um, what was the missing piece of this puzzle that that would allow me to get uh, get an Olympic medal again? And earlier that year, I had gotten Giardia in uh, out of drinking I was drinking out of a stream in Colorado which was a no-no but I thought I was high enough um, and I got Giardia a couple weeks later but I didn't know I thought maybe I ate something weird and then I thought I had the flu and by the time I went to the doctors I was like a week and a half into um, to just not absorbing any any of the nutrients I was eating and um, and so talking with the with the doctors in hindsight they said that because I was still running, that it, my body, in order to still have cardiac function, 
took all the nutrients from my bones, leached all the nutrients from my bones. Like, aren't our bodies amazing that my heart took priority over everything? Like, I just still am in awe of that. And so in order for my heart to keep pumping, it leached the nutrients and minerals it needed from my bones. And they never got reabsorbed because I had zero vitamin D in my body because I've gone through melanoma on three occasions. And um, and so the sun is not an option. I didn't know that vitamin D was a thing then. Now it's pretty much a um, something in a blood profile that's very common um, to take when your blood is taken. It's common to to search for how much vitamin D you have because it's supposed to decrease inflammation and be anti-cancer. And so it's an important mineral uh, vitamin to have. And because I didn't have vitamin D in my system, but a lot of calcium, um, I wasn't able to, to reabsorb the calcium into my bones. So I just made it my mission to sit around and eat a lot of foods with, with vitamin D in it. And it was surprising to know what those foods were because um, there wasn't a lot of research then. But it ended up being the yolks of, of farm-raised eggs because the, the chickens are getting a lot of sun. So those egg yolks are as orange as a persimmon. They're just beautiful. And you can tell they're healthy for you just by the looks of them. And um, they have a much different look than a conventional egg. And, um, and herring and salmon, uh, some cold water fishes that are really high in vitamin D, organic leafy greens because they have more bioavailability so you can absorb the vitamin D uh, more efficiently and then fortified foods breads and milks and and orange juices that have vitamin D uh, in them so it was a learning experience and I felt every day that I was getting stronger and it was interesting even with my foot in a cast and sitting on the couch I felt like I was a healthier version of myself than right before the Olympic Games when I was when I was thinking I was going to medal this uh it makes me think a lot because obviously as a professional athlete, your body is, it's your moneymaker, yeah. your whole identity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everything. Yes. Where were you mentally when this happened? Because you had to pretty much relearn how to walk. Yes. And I, I think because I've practiced positivity for so many years that it was easy to make that transition, even on the bus without answers when I was heading to the bird's nest. I remember one minute um, on the bus being so angry at my body for failing me. And then in the hospital in the Olympic Village, after I got the results of my of my x-ray and my doctor back home saying, don't let a bed sheet touch your toe because your foot swelled so badly, it pushed your bones back into place. So here with all these splintered and feathered pieces of my bones just squeezed back into place from inflammation. And so whereas a couple hours earlier, I was angry at my body. In this moment, I was amazed at it for already starting the healing process. So our bodies want to be healthy if we give it the avenue to do so. And I was really understanding in that moment that there's a big difference between fitness and health. And I was fit, but I was not healthy. That's outrageous to have that mindset uh, right off the bat. I, I did an interview uh, with Don Harper Nelson a couple years ago, and we talked about her experience in Beijing, right? Actually, uh, and she fell on the hurdles, and she immediately wanted out of the stadium. She hopped a fence with her husband, and I think they tried to get away from the press. And she had a moment right before they got you know all the way out, and she said, "You could do two things here. You can." try to leave, you can get out of here, or you could stop, have your moment, reflect, 
and then go back in there and face it. Because what can happen is if you don't stop and learn from mistakes, what they're a mistake. You didn't put all that effort in to fail, but if you don't stop and look at what happened and analyze and go back to it, then what's it going to serve you? So she she affectionately talked about how she went back in and she talked to the reporters and she reflected on her race and she she learned so much from it because she was willing to confront it. Yes. And it sounds like you were so willing right off the bat. Yeah, to process it. And it's such an important part of, of that journey of self-improvement that we can we can look at disappointment, which Don and I have both run the gamut of of international experience on disappoint like highs and lows, um, disappointments and victories. But um, but we can process it in a it, these hard terms like disappointment instead of feeling like a failure in disappointment, which I had made the mistake of doing for so many years. To think of disappointment as a desire to be better that. Um, it's a feeling that comes with being totally invested in something and wanting more and expecting more. So how do I get more out of myself the next time? And that's when it becomes, um, that's when you evolve into more of a growth mindset instead of this debilitating one where you're seeping in disappointment. So it's about defining these hard emotions in a better way that can serve us. Do you have any consistent mantras that you repeat to yourself when you run? Oh, she's nodding enthusiastically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think mantras are really are really important. It's not something that I use on a daily basis, but it definitely is there through some of the more challenging moments of a race or a workout. And the one that seems to work for me so often is define yourself. Because there's so many occasions where we think, oh, it's just one race or someone's, I remember thinking so strangely one time of, you know what, someone's going to win this race next year. Someone won this race last year. So who really cares? Like this, we're not like solving world problems here. It's only a race. It's only, it's only a run through this, this darn city, you know? And I just laugh at, at how we can rationalize giving up on, on our goals and our dreams. And so I make it I make it a bigger picture. I make it about making this choice is forming the habits that I'm going to rely on for the rest of my life. If I give up now, then I can get into a habit of giving up. But if I dig down and try harder, then I'm also forming the habits to do that. So to me, I make it about defining who I am as a human being. And that becomes a much, much harder thing to bail out of. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk about putting the pressure yeah, on. Yeah. The moment becomes very intense. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, Beijing is effectively, uh, for our purposes, your hurdle moment. Would you say that at that time you had that same mental approach to running? Or do you think that this, this really thinking, okay, each of these situations contributes to the bigger picture. Do you feel like that was developing for you at that time, that kind of mantra, or have you been there for years? Um, I I think it's it's taken time, but I had definitely been practicing what it takes to get through a hard moment for, for years before that. And whether it's practicing gratitude or it's um, or it's keeping keeping a journal to see how you handle handle hard times. It could be um, relying on friends and family. There's just so many options to be inspired and to keep going around us. We sometimes get caught up in in paying attention to the um, challenges around us when simultaneously there's a lot of good happening and support for us. Um, so it's important to, to give our attention to the good stuff in order to, to thrive more. Um, but, but I think that all that practice certainly allowed me um, 
to sob in that towel and get over it very quickly and move on to growing from from there. So it's I think the the practice is very important on a daily basis as opposed to just relying on these tools when when something hits the fan. When you got back on your feet and you started running even just a little bit, talk to me about how that felt. Yeah, it was it was strange to have to learn to walk again because I was in a cast for so long and then a boot and then finally only able to balance on two legs, but I couldn't really walk around. It was a very gradual buildup to being able to run, but learning able to walk, heel, rolling off the toe, making sure you're not favoring that middle metatarsal um, and creating bad habits in in your gait before before starting to run again. And then being able to, um, to finally get on this trail for this hike um, to get on unstable surface, which seemed so exciting, <laughs> you know. So every, you took a you took a hike first every, yes, before you started to ride. Yes, and every day was every I shouldn't say every day because there's days where you're tired or whatever. But but every week just felt like this amazing growth. Like oh my gosh, I'm standing on both of my feet again, and I tried to celebrate and honor that as opposed to compare myself to a to a two twenty marathoner. And um, so I was on this hike, and it was supposed to be two hours long. And I chose a place I had never been so that I could explore, which really gets me excited. And I went through this um, this Long Lake Valley and uh, I looked at my watch and I looked at my map and I thought and I had like a real map in my hand because I was afraid that that my, I wouldn't get GPS signals. And so I went old school and I I realized like, I'm not going to see much if I don't hustle and get going. So I just started jogging and immediately felt this rush of endorphins and joy of like moving through the mountains and climbing this hill, just like my breath heaving to realize I was at 12,000 feet and, um, and the way back just in like this euphoric state of, of being part of, of something that I enjoy so deeply. And it had nothing to do with time or place similar to, to being here in London. It had nothing to do with that. It was just the joy of moving again. Did you ever think during your recovery that you wouldn't run again? I did. I, I questioned it for sure. I thought um, maybe my foot wouldn't heal properly. I thought maybe um, that much time off would set me back years in fitness. And so I wasn't sure, but I also felt okay with it. I felt that I was just happy to have my health back, happy to understand health in a different way, in a broader way, um, knowing that things can be happening internally that are totally un- so far under the surface we don't see them going on and so to pay attention to how I feel a little more um, energy wise was really important so I feel like the 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 upset of it all was truly a gift in the end what I want to know is what has been some of the best advice that you have been given in your career because you're giving me excellent advice of how to stay resilient but who gives you the advice back I feel like inspiration is always around us. I think the person that has influenced me the most has been my first professional coach, Joe V. Hill. And he showed me through example that the power of all that we possess, whether it's time, money, knowledge, food, the the value of it increases exponentially the moment it's shared. And so I feel he lived that example and it's become more or less my life philosophy that if I have it, share it. 
because what good is, it was my motivation in writing Let Your Mind Run, because what good is having all these universal truths that running has taught me if I'm not also sharing it with the people around me? I share it with my teammates and my friends, but to be able to share it in a bigger way has been a huge reward. What's better than um, making a nice meal and sharing it with others as opposed to just sitting down and eating it yourself? So I, I love that um, the sharing of everything that we have, and it really makes what we have more valuable. So I feel like you probably leaned into a lot of the people that give you inspiration after Beijing, making your comeback. Tell me what happens when you're back. Yeah, you're back and you're just trying to settle into to that journey of progress. You're looking at coaches for better advice. You're looking at your teammates for inspiration and really feeding off the progress day to day without comparing who you were a year prior or two years prior or 10 years prior. You're just looking at the at the progress and the process itself. And when you can really do that, be mindful in the moment of that journey forward, I think you can be proud instead of disappointed in, in where you are. So you are getting back into running. You're, you know, regaining all of the strength. You're doing it successfully in a way that you can now say, okay, I'm not done with this yet. That must have been empowering. It felt it felt amazing to just feel that snap back in your legs to do that first speed session. I mean, all those first, they just lined up my first five miles, my first 10 miles, my first speed session, my first tempo run, my first long run. It all felt amazing. What's a piece of advice that you'd want to give someone who wants to tackle that first mile, that first five mile, that first 10 mile, like they want to do it and maybe they're a little bit scared. I would say the reward is just putting your shoes on and doing it. I I used to think that you needed to incentivize things like that, these bold moves that we sometimes make, like getting off the couch and running our first mile. But the reward is just in the process itself. And it's so empowering to question what we can do and then go ahead and do it. It makes it feel that much more special. So the the fear or the intimidation uh, shouldn't stop you, but it should allow you to know that it's going to be that much greater once you get there. So it's also enjoying the journey. Absolutely. I kept telling myself that in Boston, you know, you get to Boston, <laughs> you get to Boston and it's the weather is there's nothing you can do and yeah. you can't control it and you just have to accept it. And it's like, in the meantime, you got to step back and realize this journey has been so special already. Right. Absolutely. It's special just to get to the starting line of Boston. It's a, it's a journey in and of itself. And people um, should feel that the reward is the race itself. Even though we were met with horrific conditions, it's still just this, the human spirit that allows you to continue going is a, is a real beautiful thing to acknowledge. So at this time in 2010, you're running a lot. And something feels a little bit off. Yeah. yeah. So what's happening, Dina? <laughs> I went from working out in a really great way to just feeling awful. And I had no idea. Um, oh, I will make a long story short, but I was pregnant <laughs> and, um, and ended up uh, having a very sedentary pregnancy. It, I thought maybe I could at least run a half hour a day for the health of it to get out and enjoy views and exercise and fresh air. Um, for the health of me and the the baby growing. And um, and I couldn't do it. I had these 
these debilitating side stitches that it only felt good to sit around and hang out in the house. So that's what I did. If for fresh air, I read books on the deck and um, and took deep nurturing breaths. But for the most part, I did almost nothing during my pregnancy, but read books and clean the house a lot. I've got to ask. When you were pregnant, did you go through another set of asking yourself, am I going to run professionally again? Absolutely. I think um, it's probably natural for a lot of women to question their careers in the in the face of starting a family. So I did question whether I would start running, but I was also encouraged by my husband to not make decisions, let it happen organically and enjoy this this time of starting a family. And if you feel like you want to continue when when Piper's born, then by all means, put those shoes on and we'll make it work. But if you want to stay at home and and raise this child and be dedicated he also supported that. I love her name. Yeah. <laughs> Piper Bloom. Yes. I thought my husband, my husband thought of the name and I thought um, Bloom was because she was going to be born in the springtime. She happened to be born during a horrific snowstorm and we almost named her Piper Storm because of it, which also fits her name a little better, her personality a little better. But um, <laughs> Piper Bloom it is. <laughs> What's the bloom for? Uh, well, it is the In Bloom song by Nirvana. And the first <laughs> lyrics are sell your kids for food. So I hope she's not insecure that if we ever go hungry, she'll be she'll be sold so we can put food on the table. Maybe you can just tell people the spring. Yeah, the yeah spring she's born for the spring. Yes, yes. <laughs> I promise, Piper, if you're listening, I would never sell you for food. You're much too valuable. <laughs> so you get back into running and... Uh, Things are going well, and there's another Olympic Games right around the corner. So what do you do, Dina? I I started to get excited with the fitness that I was gaining and decided to um, train for a crash course in in marathoning and and entering the the U.S. marathon trials that were being held in Houston that year. And I remember it being a really tough buildup that there was nothing that no other time in my life that anything but running was competing for my attention. And here I was trying to put in the work and knowing that I wasn't doing everything like the stretching and the massages and the, um, and the naps and the, the second runs all the time. So there was a lot I was compromising, but I was a new mom and I was also invested in feeding my daughter and in playing with her and, um, and so it was it was just an an important time that I didn't do so gracefully. And I remember running the Olympic trials tired. And by the time the race started to hurt, I didn't have it within me to fight for it. I got sixth place, so I did not make the Olympic team. And my first thought when I crossed the finish line is that I failed as a mom and as an athlete. And it was hard. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting, yeah. I feel like you're getting a little emotional yeah. about it. Do you think... Looking back on it now, do you feel that way? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I think, oh, silly Dina, you were so young and naive to think that way. But I did have to, I did have to step back and say, like, how do people do this? How do people manage family and careers? And and as I was as I was suffering and in this place of self-pity, I thought, oh, come on people do this all the time like get yourself together like there are there are very successful women and men out there that raise families and run and and have have lucrative careers 
and your career and running are the same thing. So shouldn't you have it easier? So I just had to like have this talk with myself, like you've got to figure this out. And I realized that we can have more than one hat. And it felt so great to finally figure out that stride of being out there and enjoying running and being able to get to my get the best out of myself while I was running, but also get the best out of motherhood when I was with my family. I mean, I think there's something to be said for this idea of women getting back into the workforce in general after having children. Just it blows my mind to think about performing at the same elite level while you're missing out on sleep. You're waking up at 2 a.m. You're running to and from who knows daycare and putting food on the table and all of these new factors that you didn't have to deal with when you were just you and your husband. Right. And leading up to the Olympic trials, it was my time, my time running. I felt guilty being away from Piper because she wasn't an easy child, um, an easy baby. And then um, and then the times I was with her, there was this understanding deep inside me that I wasn't doing everything I needed to do to fulfill that that running goal. So there was guilt on on both sides. And so I really had to struggle with that for a while before finding my stride. I was going to say, like, how did that change? It changed just by setting priorities. And that seems so simple, but I just set priorities that health and family should always come first and that running and career um, would come second. And I realized very quickly after that, that those lines often blur a lot because getting out for a run sometimes made me a better mom, allowed me to provide for the family and kept me healthy. So in any in any case, it allowed me to justify what I needed to do in any given moment. Talk to me a little bit about self-love, because I feel like this, what you're kind of getting at is this idea of self-care. What do you do aside from running and spending time with your family that you feel like truly gives back to you and who you are? I think it's so important to get to a place where you can look in the mirror and say, I deserve this. I deserve this time. I deserve this food. I deserve this glass of wine. I deserve- We're this. drinking wine. Yes. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to get to that space. And it's not its not always easy. But um, I think once you feel that moment of self-acceptance, it in of itself is a is such a great gift to, to give yourself. I like to call it strategic joy, traveling the world a lot. Uh, we're sitting here in a London hotel room, traveling the world a lot. It is um, it is hard for me to be away from home so much. And I try to make it homier. I put a picture of my family up on the nightstand, like not just on my cell phone, but a real real picture that that sits there. I like to go to the grocery store or a florist and get a little potted flowers that that can sit on the nightstand. And um, and when I leave, I give it to the housekeeping or the front desk and pass on that love and ask them to take care of it. Um, in other ways, when I come in from a run, I'll grab some lavender outside or rosemary and shove them in my running shoes to freshen them up for the next day. And then I feel so happy when I put them on next to to know that I just put that tiny bit of effort into to loving my running shoes. So there's all these little ways that you can like strategically add a little bit of joy to your life because some of the responsibilities we have are a little mundane or maybe not as glamorous as as we would like them to be. And um, and so it's important to spark joy in some way so we can enjoy all aspects of who we are. Uh, your self-care routine is so legit. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me want to establish some new yeah. self-care practices. Yeah, we should always be recreating them so that we can really feel the the giddiness that comes with being kind to ourselves. When do you feel the most yourself? Wow. 
I think I feel the most myself when I'm visiting with with people I enjoy being around, whether it's weekends like this where um, where I'm with like-minded people and people who challenge me. Um, I love that because so often we're part of social media and we're we're befriended by people who think like us and have ideals like us. And I really enjoy that aspect of of being introduced to and visiting with people that might challenge the way that I think um, or try to make me understand and have compassion for for the way someone else is thinking. Um, I'm also my I think I'm maybe at, maybe I'm getting to your answer as I keep as I keep talking, but maybe I'm uh, my most happy when I'm ho- at home after a good long run and cooking in the kitchen with my family. The intention of putting a great meal on the table, nourishing them with with goodness, wholesome, wholesome ingredients, well put together is probably when I'm when I'm um, a little extra giddy. I've got to ask, what do you cook? Oh, gosh, it depends on what um, on what the day is. If it's a if it's a cold, a cold night, I might um, um, do some fillets with this gorgonzola cream sauce on it or with a side of gorgonzola cheese gnocchi. Um, and some type of grilled vegetable. If it's going to be a warm summer night, I might throw together some shrimp and mango cilantro spring rolls and serve a nice chilled wine with it. I mean, I think it it just depends on depends on the weather, my mood. Um, you have a lucky family. Yeah, oh, I'm lucky. <laughs> going to come them. over to my apartment and start cooking for me. <laughs> yeah, I certainly would do that. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our time here, so I guess what I want to know is how do you feel now and what do you feel is next for you? Wow, I think that progress is always never ending and I don't judge progress by what's on my watch. I like to challenge myself and I think that's why running has become a lifestyle for me as opposed like, I guess, aside from being my profession, my career, it's also a lifestyle. And so just being able to to go out and challenge myself on a daily basis has been really important that you can feel pride and satisfaction at the end of the day when you know you've given your all to a difficult task. So what's next? <laughs> um, I don't have any races next. How does that feel? It feels good. I have a lot of travel coming up. I have... Um, going to races for being advocates of the race. Um, I have speaking engagements coming up, which will most certainly highlight the power of positivity and performance. But I also have teammates in my Mammoth Track Club that have high goals. And I was once in their position being impressionable and trying to break on to the national and international scene. So I'm hoping that by training with them side by side, I can I can give them some of the tools to get them there. I love that. Last question. You can offer Dina on the bus, head in the towel, crying, one piece of advice. What do you tell her? There's always a stronger side ahead. That's really special. I love it. Awesome. Dina, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was fun. Please take a moment to leave a quick review by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. Dina, where do they find you? Uh, dinacaster.com. They can they can actually connect with me um, in the comments section and it'll come to my email address and I try to answer everything that comes through. 
What's your Instagram handle? Instagram is Dina8050. Does anybody know what that means out there? What's that mean? It is the elevation that I live. Yeah, I live in the mountains. And then Twitter is at Dina Caster. I love that. Awesome. I'm at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>